I'm Mike Sheridan and you're very welcome to The Delve. Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist and professor. He's the author of Maps of Meaning and more recently 12 Rules to Life and Antidote to Chaos. The latter is a bestseller and has seen his popularity soar, as too in many quarters has the criticism of the 56-year-old Canadian. He is part of an arena debate with Sam Harris that is being moderated by Douglas Murray and it comes to Dublin's Tree Arena on July 14th. And this is the book, uh, 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. Uh, and delighted to have Jordan Peterson here. Jordan, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, I know you just arrived in Ireland, you were saying, five or six hours ago. Yep. Um, what is this whirlwind of a life like for you? Because it seems like from the outside looking in that it's a bit of an intense existence, to say the least. Because you've been, you're, you're constantly touring, constantly lecturing. Well, mostly I concentrate on the, on the thing I'm doing now. Um, my wife travels with me, and her job at the moment is to tell me what I'm doing next. And then I have other people working for me who are telling me what I'm doing tomorrow and next week and in the upcoming months, about five or six months out. Okay. And so I can, I can do this if I can concentrate on what I'm doing now. Okay, but and you, did you, have you come in? You've come in from the U.S.? Came in from New York. So, like, there's no jet lag, there's no anything? Oh, just sure. Once, once you focus? Yeah, well, there's still some jet lag, but it's okay. I mean, I've, I've been traveling around a lot for the last six months, and so I'm accustomed to it to some degree. I'm probably not at my best at the moment because I only got about two and a half hours of sleep last night. But, um, but you know, that's not that big a problem. It's just... That is, it's that's just a small problem. For, for most people, that's a pretty big problem. They're only getting two and a half hours sleep, and you have to go. And obviously, I want to talk about it as well. You're, you're doing a, a, I suppose you wouldn't really call it a gig. It's a debate. Uh, but it's yeah. a debate, and it's in the tree arena with, with Sam yep. Harris. Uh, and and with week. Douglas Murray. And with Douglas Murray. Uh, yep. I know he's emceeing, uh, for want of a better phrase, the debate. Uh, is it a strange thing to be playing venues? This isn't like Vicar Street. This isn't an 1,100-seater crowd. This is a 10,000-seater yeah, stadium. Right. Is it, it's not something we often see. No, that's for sure. No, it's... Um, well, and I've, been on a, I've been in 55 cities in the last four months, I guess, is, is the total now. And most of the venues that I've been speaking at have seated between 2,500 and 3,000 people. So this is definitely the biggest event that, that's occurred. It's quite surprising that that market exists, and I've really been trying to understand why it exists. And um, my conclusion has been essentially that it's the consequence of a technological revolution. It's a, the the provision of of online video and podcasts is a revolution. It didn't seem like that to begin with because YouTube was like cute cat videos for quite a long time. But it's a big deal that people can put up TV shows of any length. There's no bandwidth requirement, and it's very inexpensive to produce, and everyone can join in the debate. And so one of the things, one of, of the way it's turned out is that people have a much longer attention span than anyone suspected. So these long-form interviews and discussions on YouTube have become very popular, and this, the, the venues, the public lecture venues, are an extension of that. It turns out that people have an appetite for relatively long-form, relatively deep, complex, philosophical discussion. Who would have guessed it? Because you said you think the spoken word is now stronger than the written word. Well, it certainly has the same reach and the same longevity, right? That's a big deal. Well, first of all, like we don't know how many people can listen 
compared to how many people can read. My guess is a lot more people can listen than can read. Plus, once the video is a podcast, or if it's just a podcast to begin with, then people can listen when they're doing other things. So that also frees up time that people were occupied during, but now can add this additional level of engagement to so that they can educate themselves. And when, when I, did, I did two discussions with Sam Harris on the relationship between science and religion, that's one way of thinking about it, or facts and values, which is a fairly philosophically oriented discussion, we were going to talk for an hour and then do a Q&A with the audience, but we got an hour into the discussion and then asked, and it seemed to be going well, the audience seemed to be very engaged, so we asked them if they wanted us to switch to Q&A or keep talking, and the overwhelming sentiment from the crowd was that they wanted us to keep talking, so we talked for about two and a half hours each night, and the discussion was continuous in some sense, and the audience was on board entirely. Is that generally, uh, you know, consistent with the audience? Is that a quiet? Are they paying attention? Because oh, you God, think, yes. You think big venue, big theatre, you think there's going to be heckling. Most people are probably used to seeing stand-up comedians. Yeah, no, no, like they're, they're, they're... I mean, I have Dave Rubin introducing me, and he engages the audience in that way, and there's a bit of back and forth in the initial sections. But once I start to talk to the audience, then they're dead quiet, and which is also something that I'm paying attention to because if the audience isn't quiet, it means that they're not engaged, and that means I've gone off course. But they're very engaged, and they're also very engaged during... So I talk for about 75 minutes generally, and then there's a half an hour to 45-minute Q&A, and it's, everyone's locked on. Now, with, with some topics more than others, you know... It, you know if the, the audience is engaged when you could hear a pin drop, so to speak, in the auditorium. And that happens, I would say, most intensely when I'm talking about the relationship between responsibility and meaning, which I think is probably the core. Of the, it's, it's, it's at the core of the utility of whatever it is that I'm communicating with people. Because I think I've been able to figure out how to make the case that most... Well, that you need meaning in your life. It's not optional because your life is, life is very difficult. And unless you have a meaning that can sustain you, then you suffer too much. You end up bitter. You end up cruel. You end up working to make things worse. And so you need a sustaining meaning. And that sustaining meaning is fundamentally to be found in the voluntary adoption of responsibility. And that isn't an argument that people have heard. They've heard that it's useful to be responsible or that you should be responsible. But that's not the same argument. Is that there's a reason that you should be responsible, and the reason is is that your own life becomes intolerable to you unless you have something worthwhile that you're shouldering. It's actually the burden itself that's the meaning. So, well, who the hell would have expected that? But people are very receptive to that idea. And, I mean, it's partly, I think, because the audiences who are coming to see me are people who are trying for one reason or another to put their lives together. But that discussion seems to be central to whatever is necessary for people to put their lives together. And they're very, po- they're ridiculously positive events. I really love doing them because everyone's there, as far as I can tell, to develop a clear vision of what they want and need in life and to implement that and to take more responsibility and to try to say things things in their own life to communicate in a more truthful manner. So they all want to do that, 
And then after the talks, I talk to usually about 150 people, and inevitably, three-quarters of them say, here's a bunch of ways my life was in disarray. I've been trying to sort myself out and to develop a vision and to take more responsibility and to tell the truth, and things are way better. They're better for me, they're better for my family, they're better in my relationship. So it's like, how can you not love that? That's so good. Where, so. Where, where did this start? Where did this level of popularity start? Obviously, you're, you're a professor, you're a clinical psychologist, yeah. you were in Harvard and you were in Toronto. But where did this level of fame, because it's been an incredibly intense focus of fame on you for probably since the Cathy Newman interview, but, you know, it started long before then with your YouTube channel. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's been building, I would say, gradually. You know, it hit a tipping point. It hit a couple of tipping points in the last two years. But my classes at Harvard were very popular and highly rated, and my classes at the University of Toronto were the same. And I was rated at the U of T as, by the students as one of three life-changing professors. And the responses I got to my courses were very similar to the responses I'm getting from audience members now, which is the typical student response was something like, this course changed the way I looked at everything, which was sort of the point of the course. So, and then I started working with um, uh, a a public television station in, in Ontario, TV Ontario, and I did a number of lectures for them for a series called Big Ideas, uh, which was an experiment conducted by a producer there, Wodek Schemberg, on long-form intellectual discussions. He thought there might be a market for that. and Actually, the podcast that was generated from Big Ideas became quite popular. And my lectures were very popular in that series. There was about 300 lectures, something like that, from public intellectuals of various sorts from all over the world. And my lectures were usually in the top... There's five lectures, and they were always in the top 10 or 15 in terms of popularity. I did a 13-part series based on my course, which was a strange thing. I don't think that had happened to any other professor before on the same television station. And that was popular for something of its breadth and magnitude, you know. And so then I started putting my, YouTube, my lectures on YouTube because I thought two things. I thought, well, why not? There it is. And, and also because I thought, well, I don't know what this is, YouTube. I might as well play with it and... That's how you learn something, right? You use it. And so, and then by April of 2016, I had a million views. And people were, the, the average length of viewing time was 20 minutes, which is quite long by YouTube standards, or certainly was then. It's a misleading statistic because lots of people would just click and then move to something else, right? So there'd be lots of 10, 15 second views and lots of people watching the entire lectures. But clearly they were watching big chunks of the lectures. And so in April of 2016, I got a million views. I thought, well, what does that mean, million? It's a lot. That's, you know, it's 50 pretty decently packed stadiums. It's a lot of people. What am I supposed to make of this? How do I conceptualize this? And that's when I started to think about online video and the podcast, but mostly video at that point, as a second Gutenberg revolution, which I I believe it is. And I started to play with Patreon funding at that point, again, mostly out of curiosity. Then I made some videos out of curiosity, criticizing some administrative moves on the part of the University of Toronto that the HR people made it mandatory for their 
staff to undergo this is the, unconscious this is the, bias training. This is the trans issue that, that blew and up and became that a that national was another story, part of it. Yes, story, that's yeah. right, and the compelled speech legislation in Canada. And so I got up in the middle of the night. I was very annoyed at the university for daring to describe their employees as implicit racists and then demanding in the absence of any scientific evidence whatsoever that this is a valid process, either the measurement or the remediation, demanding that they subject themselves to re-education. I thought there was no excuse for a university to do that because there was no scientific justification for the undertaking. So I criticized that and I criticized this Bill C-16, which was a compelled piece of compelled speech legislation in my estimation. And I got up at 2 in the morning and I thought, oh, I've got some things to say. I often write when when I have some things that are on my mind, but I thought, well, I might as well make some did, videos to did, see what happens. Did you expect, obviously, you know, there's a huge positive following there as well, but mm-hmm. did you expect, I suppose, the negative blowback from that, where you're kind of saying it's, you know, it's a, it's a freedom of speech thing, I suppose, mm-hmm. you just don't want to be compelled by mm-hmm. the law or by any hierarchy to tell you you have to mm-hmm. do something. I didn't something. want anybody yeah. to be compelled with regard to the content of their speech. I'm no fan of hate speech legislation. I think it's incredibly dangerous, but hate speech legislation at least only tells you what you can't say. It doesn't tell you what you have to say. If there's no excuse for governmental agencies to tell you what you have to say for any reason. Compassion, that was hypothetically the reason, although I didn't buy that either. And I read the policies around with regards to Bill C-16, and I knew perfectly well what the overarching enterprise uh, consisted of. You know, it's it's part of the attempt by the radical left-wingers to gain gain the, the linguistic hegemony, is how I would describe it. And so I'm not participating in that. But no, I had no idea what the consequences would be. It wasn't, it was, curiosity kills the cat, as they say. You know, of course, it saves lots of cats too, but you don't hear about them. But, but uh, how, how does I mean the negative comments? Do they do they affect you? Because obviously, there's a huge groundswell again of positivity. Yeah. But there there is a negativity there. There is people who are heavily criticising you. You have been protested. I put I just oh, showed yeah. some of the comments before. The protests are very. The protests have been very stressful. But even I put something up on my social media, and I've been doing this for 10, 11 years, yeah. interviewing people, and just saying I was going to be speaking to you. And the amount of comments I got were insane. I've never had anything like it. Some mm-hmm. people commented anonymously. Uh, some people commented underneath. And, and to be fair, the majority of that probably says more about maybe my following, I don't know, were extremely positive and looking for books to be signed and that yep. stuff too. Yep. But there was like a, a negativity and an, inher- an inherent negativity. Um, and you know, with a couple of articles sent to me from The Guardian... And this type of stuff. Oh, yeah, The pretty, Guardian. Yeah, yeah. The, but The Guardian have written positively about you as well. Yeah, yeah, it's um, been all over the place in The but Guardian. You, but you, on, on your social media, follow you on your social media channels, you share everything. So, you know, that's obviously a conscious decision to be like, there's, there's going to be good and bad out there. Yeah. You know, put it out to your following, I suppose, to consume, and for no other reason. Yeah, well, they're, they're, well the negative, I mean, a lot, of it's, a lot of it's stressful. I mean, when everything blew up, in the aftermath of the first videos I generated, I mean, there were student protests, and they were quite intense and very cinematic, and which was interesting because they were all filmed, not by me, but by people who then posted it to YouTube, and that was the first thing really that went viral, was a, a, a free speech protest, that, a pro-free speech protest that was a counter-protest to a previous protest that was attempting to, um, what entice or force the university to discipline me in some serious manner, which they attempted to do 
to some degree. Um, but it was recorded and, and it went viral. And that was the first, you asked about how this had been propelled yeah. along. That was the first real bump. And then, well, that mushroomed up into all sorts of media coverage. I mean, I've probably been, I don't know, I've talked to at least one journalist a day for two years. And in some days it was like ten journalists. or it was, It's just been non-stop. And now it would be that non-stop except that I have filtering mechanisms in place, I suppose, to, yeah. to, to decrease Yeah, that. I, was, I, was, I was listening to a podcast you did uh, last week and you were saying, look, you know, maybe the, the way forward for me is to not do anything that is edited anymore. Yeah. Anything that, and, you know, it goes back to that, that spoken word thing. So do you feel that, you know, publications are purposely taking a stance on you? Uh, oh, some of them are. Yeah. Some of them are. So I mean, and then the, then the audience is maybe looking at the headlines, whereas your fans are consuming kind of every minute of audio or video that you put out there. Yeah, well, the, the, the question is, like, I mean, I'm trying to communicate effectively. Um, and the question then is how to do that. And I'm at a point now where there is so much attention paid to what I'm doing on YouTube, for example, that it isn't obvious how much additional exposure in the mainstream media, let's say, is actually productive or useful. I don't want to repeat myself. You know, I'm going to repeat myself to some degree. I don't want to do that more than is necessary or useful. Um, And people are chopping up my YouTube videos into small bits and distributing them. I think they're, they're producing... I think last month people made 20,000 videos out of my videos. So you, when you look at that, you think, well, is there any additional utility? Like, what's the utility of communicating more than that? Maybe that's market saturation. So I'm trying to figure out how to handle this in an intelligent way. It's not really that I'm trying to cut myself off from the mainstream vi- media or something like that. It's just that I don't want to be, over, I don't want to be counterproductively overexposed. I don't see any utility in that. It's a disappointment to the people who are following me on a relatively continual basis. And it's, well, if you use anything in a suboptimal manner, it tends to kick back. Now, the issue of not doing any media interviews that aren't live, there's pros and cons to that. The pro is there's no gerrymandering of the content. And, and I've certainly had experiences with some media outlets. NBC, I think, was the worst, where they've taken 90-minute interviews and cut them to three-minute sections that bore no resemblance to what I was saying, right? Really just unbelievably manipulative editing. Now, the thing is, they got caught out because they also released more or less the unedited interviews and people on YouTube then cut them together. Was that after pressure from your followers? No. No. No, it's so funny. Well, it's the same thing happened. Some of it's just naivety, as far as I can tell. The Channel 4 interview. Well, that's a good example. They released a full interview. The NBC thing really shocked me because they they edited me so uh, viciously, let's say, but stupidly at the same time. And then they released the unedited video. It was like, it was this strange combination of incompetence and malevolence. With, with Channel 4, it was more 
naivety, I think. I believe that the powers that be at Channel 4 watched the video, and they did cut it and then released a small section, but then they put the whole thing online. And the reason they put the whole thing online was because they thought it went well. They were shocked by what happened. Well, they were, they were kind of also saying that there had been blowback to Cathy Newman and that they'd had to call in the police. Oh, yes. Well that, that, well, that was really interesting. It was really interesting to watch that, eh? because I went into, the, into Channel 4 and I met Cathy backstage and we were getting ready. And uh, she was quite pleasant. And then we, we went and sat in front of the cameras and the cameras turned on and she just changed. That actually clued me in. I thought, okay, I'm not where I think I am. And so then I basically watched her like I was watching someone who I was having a clinical session with, which I don't usually do to people because it's kind of, well, it's not a normative mode of social interaction, put it that way. It's much more, it's much more like when, when we're talking and we're being friendly, then you're giving me the benefit of the doubt and I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. If I'm in a mode that's more clinical, it's not that I'm not giving you the benefit of the doubt, but I'm watching every single thing you do, you know, insofar as I'm able to do that, far more than you would watch someone in, in, norma- in normative discourse. And so I was watching her and then I realized that whoever she was talking to bore no resemblance to me. So, um, but then, well, they, so I left the interview and I thought, oh, they'll just cut it into seven minutes and, 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 and pillory me essentially. And, but I was on to the next thing. So that had happened before. It wasn't really concerning me that much. Then they released the entire video and all this blew up. Then her employers in particular cast her as a victim. Kathy is being trolled. The threats are so intense we had to call in the police. I thought, okay, guys, you're pushing your luck here because you've just tried to transform Kathy Newman into a victim. And whatever she might be, she's not a victim. She's a person with plenty of clout and power in a high-paid, prestigious enterprise. She, the, the risks that she took in that interview were risks she generated herself and that she took on voluntarily, you don't get to cast her as a victim. But they did. And they said, well, we had to call in the police. It's like you can call in the police for anything. That doesn't mean that the threat is credible. Um, and then a whole bunch of newspapers picked up the, you know, Dr. Peterson's followers are intimidating poor Kathy. At, at, at any point, though, did you maybe think, okay, maybe I need to give the followers a bit of a steer here and tell them, like... You oh, know, I did. Oh, yeah, this, so this isn't going... You know, nobody's been seen in the best possible light here. Don't, I did. Don't be I an did. asshole. Well, that's you know. what I did. Yeah. I went on Twitter yeah. and I said, look, like, you know, anonymous... I'm not a big fan of anonymous postings. I think that people who post on Twitter or Facebook, any venue for that matter, any media outlet, and they do it anonymously, I think there's something wrong with them. It's like, wh- why are you anonymous? And what are you using your anonymity to get away with? Well, you're, you're using your anonymity to get away with saying things that you wouldn't say if you had to face the person that you were saying. So, and there was a fair bit of anonymous comments, both, you know, directed at me and directed at her. In fact, some media outlet did an analysis and found out that the bulk of the negative comments were directed at me and not at her. But be that as it may, there were plenty directed at her. And so I went on, on Twitter and said you know, back the hell off, people, 
this isn't productive to, to be making direct threats. I mean, how direct were the threats? Well, they were unpleasant, you know. I, I don't really believe that they went beyond unpleasant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not unreasonable for people to, to react critically to what they regard as a lack of integrity on my side or yeah. on, on the side of a journalist. But you realize, obviously, you know, you've got an insane following. You know, there's a responsibility that comes with that following, particularly with how, you know, deep these people look at you as this almost like father type figure. Um, and, and how do you then deal with that responsibility? Do you feel like you have to step in every once in a while? Or do you feel like you just need to be putting out there what you've always been putting out there for the last few years? Well, most of the time I feel that I just have to be doing what I'm doing. But now and then it's worth making a comment. And I thought that that had enough was enough. That well, it was more than yeah. enough, really. It's like... Because um, sometimes people, I think, and, you know... It could be a football team, it could be anything, it could be a rock band, it could be a movie star, whatever. People are kind of judged on their following. Yeah. Uh, which is unfair. You know, you, you really, I mean, to some degree, you, you, maybe you can, but you can't really control who responds to what you put out there um, without kind of constantly, like constantly reiterating one thing or another. Um, but I, w- I want to move on from that now anyway, yeah. because okay. I think you've talked about Cathy Newman and, and, and that kind of angle enough. In the book... Um, you, you talk um, really eloquently about where you grew up. Mm-hmm. And listening to an interview with you recently, you talk even more eloquently about depression and, and, and about a battle with depression. And just from comments on, on my social media and, and, and people interacting with me when I said I was going to interview you, they were kind of blown away uh, by your comments on depression and your comments on dealing with depression. Now, I have some questions I'm going to put to you from listeners uh, at the end. But... You know, I think a lot of people were surprised by that. A lot of people were surprised. I know you've spoken about it before, but I hadn't heard personally you speak about it in that kind of way than you did on the, on the Joe Rogan podcast. And you were, you were kind of getting emotional as well. Is that something that just came out in the moment in, in the midst of the conversation? Well, my, my family, going back several generations, has been cursed with a particularly vicious form of depression. And... So it's been quite a catastrophe. It really affected my grandfather for decades. He was immobilized, I would say, after the death of his father. It was really awful. And it hit my father when he was in his late 40s. There were, there were signs of it before that, especially in the winter. And my dad's a very competent person, and so the fact that that took him down to a large degree was a shock to everyone that knew him, including him. And then... It affected me and it affected my daughter and a number of cousins and like it's really pervasive. And so that's been, it's nasty. It's a nasty you, condition. You described it as trying to imagining that your whole family had just been killed the day before and that feeling. Yeah. Kind of on a consistent basis. Well, which, I, can which, tell, well I can tell you yeah. like an, an example yeah. of it. Well, my daughter had, has a serious autoimmune condition and it was, it's very painful. She has had 40 affected arthritic joints which is plenty. One is plenty. Three is a lot. Forty is way more than necessary. And she, um, her ankle and her hip deteriorated to the point where they were both replaced when she was 16 and 17. So she basically walked around for two years on two broken legs and was on very high doses of painkillers. And anyways, it was quite the catastrophe. And she also has this predisposition to depression and so we've talked a lot about both of those things and I asked her one day 
if she'd rather have the arthritis or the depression. And she said she'd rather have the arthritis. So that's, a, that's not a bad index. And then I talked to her too about trying to describe what it was like to feel that way. And she said, well, it's like your dog just died all the time. And she really liked her dog. You know, it was a real source of comfort to her when she was growing up. And then about two years later, two years ago, our dog died. And I asked her, well, is it like that? And she said, no, it's a lot worse than that. And so it's not good. So um, what causes it exactly, I'm not, I'm not clear about. It looks like it's part of the autoimmune condition that she has. There's autoimmune disorders on my family on both sides and, and also on my wife's family. So I think my daughter got, both, got it from both sides. So, but she, she's much, much better. She's healthy now, amazingly enough. Because I've actually gotten some questions about it, um, about your diet and mm. how you've uh, changed your diet to just specifically eat meat yes. and how that has benefited you and benefited Seems your daughter. And Certainly was, benefited So far, her. at least, but you, it was your daughter that suggested this to you. Well, yes, she, did, she figured it out, I would say, and then su- suggested that I try it. And I thought, well, it had such amazing impact on her. It's absolutely unbelievable. I, I still don't believe it, that it worked. I still can't believe it. But she's symptom-free. She has, she, her depression is gone. Her fatigue is gone. All her joint symptoms are gone. She looks great. She's doing fine. It's as, amazing. As a, as a clinical psychologist and somebody who's trained in it and, and you know, practiced in it for yeah. many years, is that something you can comprehend? No, no, not really. I mean... Look, there has been, there is evidence that depression is a lot of different things. It's, it's one term that covers all sorts of different disorders with all sorts of pathways. And there is evidence that one of the functions of antidepressants is um, anti-inflammatory and that depression is an inflammatory condition and that it's associated with autoimmune dysfunction. And so who knows how prevalent that is. I mean, it's more prevalent than people thought 20 years ago. This science, independent of my opinion and my daughter's opinion, independent of that, there's evidence for autoimmune involvement in, in, in the pathophysiology of depression. The degree to which that's a contributor to, to... To what degree that contributes to depression in the general population is unknown. But is, is there a feeling then that some of your followers, uh, I don't want to say followers like you're a messiah, I know you don't like that either, but some of your fans, I suppose, or yeah. people who've bought your book and, and will go into your shows and, and download your podcasts, you know, there's an element of depression with some of these guys, because obviously, and, and girls, because obviously you've said, you know, you know, you, you know it's, individual, it's individualism, that's, that's kind of what you're pushing, be responsible for your yeah. own actions, and this is what has reverberated uh, yeah. w- w- with, with your fan base. Yeah, yeah. You mean, you're speaking yeah. about the potential contradiction between those yeah. things? Yeah, Oh, well, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's clearly the case that I think your best bet in life is to shoulder your suffering and to take responsibility and to move forward. But that doesn't mean that you're not vulnerable on all sorts of fronts. It's just your best tactic. Just because it's your best tactic doesn't mean it will always work. But you don't have a better tactic. So... You know, one of the things we constantly told my daughter was not to ever use her illness as an excuse, mostly because it would blur the lines between her and the illness. You don't ever want to do that. You know, so we wanted her to be as responsible as she could be 
given what she had to endure. It was a very difficult thing to figure out. If you have a kid that's sick like that, it's like, well, they don't want to get up to go to school. Well, you probably wouldn't want to get up either if you were, like, in pain, lots of pain. What do you do? You say you stay in bed, or do you say get the hell up if you can and, and get out because the alternative is worse? And so, you know, we always pushed her and encouraged her to bear as much as she could. And I would say that was the right strategy because she's, she did manage to have as much of a life as she could have under the, condi- under the circumstances. And she's come through all this with her character intact. So, which I think is really quite beyond belief to me. But um, it still seems to be the case. So, it isn't that shouldering your suffering and and bearing the responsibility for your life is a panacea because we're vulnerable to all sorts of things that happen to us that are in some sense ultimately uncontrollable and that's why people die right but it doesn't matter in the face of that there still isn't a better strategy um, and there's been a couple of, not, not protests, but I suppose online protests for cancellations and yeah. the mayor of a town in Canada uh, released a statement through a publication. I think that you were saying that they were involved with and there was another one. Oh, that was in yeah, Durham, North Carolina. North Carolina, actually. sorry, yeah, bigger yeah, part of yeah. North Carolina. No, that's okay. We haven't got a clue what we decided upon. Yeah, and I had and a theatre cancelled in Edmonton in Canada. Yeah. And they, the, they rescinded they rescinded the contract, in fact. They ended up apologising and, and there was no excuse for it, but it was it turned out to be a benefit. To and, me. and there's something else, and in, 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 I know in text as well that yeah, you posted yeah. about recently. Socialist uh, students are protesting you, me for reasons that have nothing to do with me. I know, but Dave Rubin uh, has kind of said that because he's, he's a stand-up comedian as well. He hosts a show called The Rubin Report. A yeah. uh, super smart guy as well. He's kind of said, "Look, come and see the shows." Mm. Is that what you would say to these people who are trying to cancel I did. your shows? I invited the whole yeah. town council of Durham to come. Uh, right. are, are they going to go? I think a couple of them are going to go. One of them said that she would attend, one of the signatories of the complaint letter, but if I said anything offensive to her or her family or her community, she would immediately leave, which I thought was a rather ungracious way of responding to an invitation. But um, the other counselor who responded was very, um, what would you call it, gracious and appropriate about it. And yes, I mean, if they come, they'll see, they won't see what they expect to see. That's certainly the case. Is, it, is, this, so. a, is this a broader issue than that? maybe people, because this is a debate, this is what you're doing in the tree arena tomorrow night, that maybe people aren't open to debate. Like, I've made a conscious decision personally which I would have listened to Pod Save America, which was ke- keeping it 1600 around the time of the election, which was kind of reinforced in my own personal views. I made a decision then, right, I'm going to subscribe to Ben Shapiro's podcast. Not necessarily a fan, yep. but it's important to have both sides. Hmm. For me personally, do you think that is a, is a broader issue where people are kind of reinforcing? I think that thoughts? most people would rather hear both sides. You know, I mean, certainly with the discussion that I've been having with Sam, it's like we have, a dis- we have a disagreement. It's a fundamental disagreement. There's things we agree about, but the disagreement is fundamental. And mostly what the audience... The audience would have settled for Sam attaining victory over me or me attaining victory over Sam. You know, and perhaps our respective fans, although oddly enough are the base of the people who listen to us, actually overlaps to quite a substantial degree despite our differences I think people were much more pleased that what we had was a productive discussion and I was certainly more pleased about that and I know Sam was more pleased about that 
And so I do think, I don't think that the typical person wants uh, to be enclosed in a self-referential bubble. I think that's a minority of people, and I think those people are afraid, fundamentally. I think people would rather hear both sides or multiple sides and go through the painful process of deciding for themselves. There's, there's, a Chris, there's a Chris Rock quote here, would you believe? I think it's from 2004, the 2004 election. I remember watching it. It might have been before then. Uh, I couldn't find a reference point for it. Uh, now, excuse, I don't have the comedic ability of Chris Rock, obviously. Uh, but the quote is, the whole country's got a fucked up mentality. We all got a gang mentality. Republicans are fucking idiots. Democrats are fucking idiots. Conservatives are idiots. And liberals are idiots. Anyone who makes up their mind before they hear the issue is a fucking fool. Not everybody, nah, nah, nah. Everybody is so busy wanting to be down with a gang. I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative. It's bullshit. Be a fucking person. Listen. Let it swirl over in your head, then form your opinion. Mm. That might have been difficult to translate with a thick mm. Dublin accent. I do apologise, but I hope you got the gist of that. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Is that something that you would agree with? Because at the time I was, I mean, relatively young, and I remember kind of... Well, young... we're all fools, yeah. which is why we have to talk, right? Because that's one of the ways you can talk yourself out of being a fool. Otherwise, why talk? I mean, obviously, there's utility in, in speaking to other people, and part of the utility is to augment your viewpoint on the off chance that there's something that you don't know. And since there's many things you don't know, well, it's, it's, it pays to listen and to engage in the dialogue. But I think that most people understand that. Um, I think that the loudest people now are the ones who are doing their utmost to encapsulate themselves and perhaps everyone else in a in a self-referential bubble. But I, I don't think that that is the majority of people at all. I think the majority of people, the majority of the time, are actually quite reasonable and would rather learn something. That's what it looks like to me. That's also why I think these long-form discussions, like Joe Rogan's discussions, which are three hours long, or Rubens is another good example, um, are attracting so many viewers and listeners is because people actually want to they want to think. And I think some people as well are probably, again, it's social media to a certain degree that they're picking up via tweets. Yeah, but you know, the studies, studies of that yeah. show that the social media users don't seem to be any more bubble encapsulated than the consumers is of it, the standard media. Is it a he- yeah, it's a headline culture then. People just read the headline. Like I've been the editor of two publications. I've seen firsthand for, you know, best part of a decade what people will click on and what they won't click yeah. on. And what they will click on, for the most part, it's, it's kind of depressing. Yeah, well, that, 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 that is a problem. I think that's an attention fractionation problem, you know, is that there's so many things that people can attend to that there's a competition for the entry point. That's the headline, right? And so I see that with what people are doing with my videos online, you know. So they'll, they'll, when they're chopping them up, they'll put a headline like, Jordan Peterson demolishes leftist journalist. And, and the content is usually nowhere near as dramatic as the headline would, would indicate. But... You know, if there's thousands of videos being produced, then there's a competition among the headlines for clicks. It's clickbait competition. I wonder what's going to happen with this interview. I'm a little bit scared. Some sort of headline. Am I leftist? What am I? Am I rightist? Whatever. Who knows? Yeah, well, you'll probably get it from both sides. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's what happens when you're in the middle, I suppose. Okay, I want to get on to some uh, uh, viewer questions as well at some point. But before I do, you have debated people on the left as well, obviously. Mm -hmm. You did the Monk debate a couple of months ago. Uh, with Michael Eric Dyson and Michelle Goldberg. And I think some people were surprised that Stephen Fry w- was standing on your side of the stage. Mm-hmm. 
And I've always been impressed by Stephen Fry. Yeah. I think he's an incredibly articulate man. He's very impressive. Uh, just, he's just generally very impressive. Yes, he certainly um, is. And there was a couple of points throughout that debate where it's the most frustrated, I've, you know, the last few months in particular, I've watched a lot of your stuff, I've listened to a lot of your stuff. It might be the most frustrated I've seen you because you felt there were a couple of, I suppose, comments put out there um, that somebody, I think she said, I think um, Michelle Goldberg said something about you and you said, that's actually not true. Mm-hmm. And she said, Google it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is that just, you know, trials and tribulations of a public debate? You didn't have to wait to give your side of it, or were you genuinely frustrated? Well, I, I was frustrated for two reasons, I think. One is I don't think the Monk debate team, the people who produced the debate, specified the question with sufficient care. So, and it, it's very hard, necessary if you're going to have a debate of that sort to specify the question very carefully. But I also think that the, the debate opened with Michelle with basically ad hominem attacks rather than discussion of the issue at hand. And so I was frustrated about that, although not, not to any great degree. Um, I thought Dyson, Dyson's insistence on, let's say, racializing the discussion... He called you was, a mean old white man. Yeah. yeah, angry, mean, angry, yeah, something like... Yeah, he had a quite a poetic way of putting it, but the the white man was part of it. And I thought, well, like, what the hell, man? First of all, I think he had Canada confused with the United States because that sort of thing just doesn't work in Canada. We don't have the same history of racial tension that characterizes the United States. We have our own brand of racial tension. It emerges mostly between, with with regards to the First Nations people and and, and the European settlers, let's say. So and that can be, it has its own brand of unpleasantness. But that's 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 not the same problem that plays itself out in the main in the United States. Um, I was frustrated because, I suppose, to the degree that I was frustrated, I was more appalled really that that sort of discussion would emerge in that sort of debate. It's not helpful. But that's part of the identity politics issue. Yeah, well, Everything's you, about your damn group. But you said you don't know anything about me. That was dumb. He doesn't response. know anything about me. Yeah. Well, I know he invited me in his supercilious manner to go attend. You know, it was a black church, um, which was a perfectly fine idea, I suppose. But he has no idea what sort of involvement I've had with, um, with, with the trials and tribulations of minority people in my life. I've had a hell of a lot more of experience with that sort of thing than he thinks. So. Um, so you haven't, you haven't taken him up on his offer? He never what? offered. It he was, just said he was going to offer. Now, he did contact me um, about the possibility of a, another discussion in podcast form, um, which I, is on the back burner at the moment. I don't know if I'm going to take him up on that or not. I'm probably not particularly inclined to. But most of that was moral posturing as far as I was concerned. And he... and. He, you know, he made a variety of assumptions about me for the reasons he stated. And I just find that sort of discussion entirely counterproductive. I don't like the identity politics players. You don't like it on either side? I don't like it, but period. I don't care if it's right-wing or left-wing. But you feel like wing. you have to keep pointing this out because it seems to be the left that are, are like coming after you more than opposed to the Well, there's to the no... Well, part of that is because I'm in academia. There's no conservatives in academia. It's not like there's right-wing identity politics professors. There is zero of them. So it's the, the left, it's the radical left that dominates the humanities and the social sciences. A fifth of them 
claim to be Marxists. A fifth of humanity, is it fifth of social science? It's a fifth of social science professors, 20%. Outright claim Marxist allegiance. It's like, what the hell? There's no excuse for that. Not after what happened, not after what happened in the latter half of the 20th century, and a fair bit in the first half, too. There's simply no excuse for that. And one of the technical problems in our society is that we haven't figured out how to identify the unacceptable left. And that doesn't mean that the left is unacceptable. That's not the same thing. There's elements on both sides. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that the left can go too far. Obviously, they went too far in the Soviet Union. They went too far in Maoist China. They went too far in Cambodia. It's like they've gone too far many times with murderous consequences. But we don't know exactly when. Now, we've kind of figured it out on the right, more or less. We figured out that if you start making ethnic or racial claims of superiority, that you've gone too far. You're no longer in the arena of reasonable political dialogue. Now, then the right can go too far, and that's how they do it. They do it with ethnic and racial superiority, primarily. When does the left go too far? Well, we're not sure. Well, that's not good enough, because clearly they can go too far. My sense is I, that the left goes too far when it calls for equality of outcome, equity, which is the new buzzword for equality of outcome. It's unacceptable, in my estimation. It's not part of productive political dialogue. It's, it, implementing equality of outcome policies produces nothing but catastrophe. Now, but, you know, that doesn't have the same emotional impact when you say, well, he's a far-right neo-Nazi who's making claims of ethnic superiority. It's like you get a shudder from that, you know, of, of, of disgust. That, that's a normative response. But you don't get the same shudder when you hear that someone is pushing for equality of outcome because it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same punch, yeah. even though I think it's an equally pernicious and dangerous doctrine. So it's a technical problem. It's not only a problem on the left. Like the moderate leftists absolutely have to separate themselves from the radical leftists. Um, but they don't know how. And you might say, well, that's the problem. That's a problem for the moderate leftists to figure out. But it's not. It's a problem for all of us to figure out. We haven't done a very good job of it, and that, that's not good. So, and I don't exactly know how to solve it, except to say that it needs to be solved. There's no clear distinction. Well, there is a clear distinction, but there's no clear barter to go, okay, you've gone too far now. That's right. Well, and also, the, yeah. the, like, one of the things that characterizes people who are temperamentally inclined to be on the left is that they don't draw borders. They're high in openness, which is a dimension of creativity, and they're low in conscientiousness, especially orderliness. And the combination of being low in orderliness and high in openness means you don't like borders. You don't, because you want information to flow freely. And so, if you don't like borders, this is partly why Trump knew that making borders, borders the issue was an intelligent political move. He intuited that borders are actually the primary, what would you call, a domain of dispute across the political axis. But it's borders at every level. Border between concepts, borders between people. Borders between cities and states and, and, and countries. It's the pr- prime political issue. The leftists are skeptical of borders because they interfere, interfere with the flow of information. So do you think there's a psychological reason why? Oh, definitely. There's yeah. no doubt about it. People do vote their temperaments. But one of the problems with that is because the leftists can't draw borders, they can't draw borders around those who are too radical. Yeah. It's less troublesome on the right because right-wingers are willing to draw borders. Now, I think it's also easier technically 
because there's something you can point to. Oh, there's a claim of ethnic or racial superiority. Box, shelved. It's very hard to do on the left, but it's necessary. So... Okay, Let, let's talk about Trump then briefly for a second because he's in London at the moment now as we're, as we're chatting right now. He's obviously, <clears throat> the voice of I think is, is probably, a, probably a kind word to say. From, again, from a personal perspective, I don't live in America. I don't, you know, in the US, I don't experience any of his policies. You know, I'm certainly not as well informed as I could be. Mm-hmm. But from the outside looking in, occasionally, occasionally scanning the news, his Twitter feed, his social media... And I'm just curious to see what you think about this. Hmm. The worst thing, from my point of view, that he does is make it seem okay to be a troll and to be a troll in real life mm-hmm. and, to, and to use the kind of language that he uses. And I think that might be the worst thing that he does. It's possible that that's the worst thing that he does. Um, Trump, the Trump phenomena, phenomenon probably worries me less than people think it should. But there are reasons for that. The first reason is that I don't really think that the American people are more polarized now than they were 10 years ago. And the reason I think that is because for 20 years, 50% of them have voted for Republicans, 50% of them have voted for Democrats. It hasn't moved. It's been exactly the same. Now, this time they had Clinton and Trump as candidates, and perhaps that was unfortunate. You know, and I also don't think Trump won the election. I think Clinton lost the election. It was hers. She had it in the bag. There were a number of things she did that were really not very bright, like play identity politics that cost her the election. I don't think that the Americans are any more polarized than they were under, under Nixon. And then that was pretty polarized. Like, there was violence on the campuses. There was more violence in, in that period of time than there is now, and more polarization. Of course, the war in Vietnam was still going on. I don't think that it's obvious that the Americans are more polarized than they were under Reagan. Maybe they are, but that's about, but I don't think it's worse than under Nixon. And so they've muddled through this sort of thing before. Trump is uh, an anomaly, in my estimation. Um, He isn't a typical Republican. He's quite bombastic and assertive. He's not a typical conservative. In fact, he wasn't a conservative, I don't think, at all before. He's a registered Democrat, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he's got an entrepreneurial bent as well. And entrepreneurial types tend to be liberal. That's where he sold himself, I suppose, as president. Well, he is an an entrepreneur. He's an author. He, He had a successful TV show. He's had his real estate dealings. And you can quibble about how successful he was at some of those things. He was certainly successful on TV. And so he's got the an entrepreneurial temperament. So he's a strange, he's a strange person. He's an he's an he's an uh, an idiosyncratic person. And the one thing I would say in his favor, as far as I'm concerned, so far is that he has not embroiled the U.S. in an additional stupid war. And that's happened a lot in the last 15 years. And the fact that that hasn't happened so far, I'm quite happy about. So he's noisy. He's provocative, that's for sure. He seems impulsive, um, although it's hard to tell how much of that is crafted, you know. Um, he's definitely disagreeable, which is quite interesting, and that, that comes out in his Twitter behavior and so forth, and in the way that he handles his political allies, for that matter. He's certainly not currying favor, and you can make the case that he's a divisive figure, and, and perhaps that's the case. But At least on a global scale. You know, from again, from the outside looking in. I'm, yeah, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not. You're traveling through America. I'm not. Just oh well, America yeah. America's, yeah. America's very more upset 
than I've seen it. People are more upset in the United States than I've seen. Certainly, I lived there for six years in the 90s. People are more upset now than they were then. The, the, the tension is palpable. Um, but I'm not convinced that that reflects a genuine polarization on the part of the populace itself. There's lots of factors at play. Um, what I'm hoping for is a return to normative incompetence among politicians. That would be really nice. Moderate left, moderate right, reasonable discussion, certain underlay of ineradicable corruption, you know, small-scale corruption that you always see in political systems, but none of this ideological excess. That would be lovely. Reasonable discussion, I think, is the... Well, reasonable yeah. stupidity. You mentioned, you mentioned earlier, you know, that, that Chris Rock's proposition that we're all fools. It's like, true enough, and that's basically what we can expect from our politicians as well, but there's a kind of normative foolishness that would be a real relief in my estimation. And so I'm hoping that's what happened in my home province because we had a government in that were nominally centrist. They were the Liberal Party, which is the centrist party in Canada, but they were really quite radical leftists. Um, and they didn't really give a damn about the fact that the party they had taken over was traditionally Canada's centrist party. And they were pushing ideological nonsense, and they got absolutely thrashed in the last election, virtually lost official party status from a majority. And now we have a right center-right premier who I'm hoping will be normally incompetent for the next four years. That would be just exactly what we need. So I'm not too worried about, about the situation in the United States. I think the Americans have been through far worse than what they're going through now. The economy's in reasonable shape, although people argue about how sustainable that is. Um, I think what's happening in North Korea is extremely interesting. I mean, I'm not optimistic about it because anybody with any sense would never be optimistic about North Korea, but um, it could be worse, and I am... I mean, how do you judge the success of an American president? Not engaging in a stupid war is a nice start. A pessimist would say he's only been there for two years. True, <laughs> look, man, would, right. Give, give him time, and it's very public. I know you have yeah. to go soon as well. Yeah. We've, we've had you for over an hour. So I want to get a, just a couple of questions, sure. a couple of viewer questions, and if that's okay... Um, Michal wants to know, he says, he's interested in your thoughts uh, as a psychologist on the Irish psyche. Um, I know you haven't been here for very long, but, you know, has there been any experience with uh, Ireland and its, its psychologists or psychology? Not, not the psychologists per se. I mean, your, your culture seems to be quite remarkably literary, which I think is really something in a, in a, in a, a what would you say? Michal's actually said as well, you don't have any Irish authors on your, on your reading list, on your book list. No, that's that's not a perp. I don't have very many authors <laughs> no. on my book yeah. list, you know. So that's really it. It's not like I haven't been influenced by Irish authors, James Joyce, obviously, and um, I don't. I did. I don't think I'm in a position to say anything particularly intelligent about the Irish psyche. Beyond that, I think the fact that that you have this immensely powerful literary tradition is really something, and something worth celebrating, and something quite remarkable. So more power to you, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I might get two more in if that's okay. Um, does it, you, in some of your lectures on YouTube, um, I think when you were in Toronto University, you used The Lion King and you used yep. uh, Pinocchio's analogies yep. for a point you're trying to get across. Is there any movie in the past 10 years or so uh, that you, know, you feel you could use or that you've watched and thought maybe I could use that in a certain way in my lectures to, to put across a point? Oh, I, I've thought about doing that with some of the superhero movies. 
the the Marvel movies in particular. I could do that with Batman and and the Joker, especially the Heath Ledger performance. That's probably more than ten years old because Heath Ledger did a great job of Incredible. playing the Joker. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it killed him. Yeah. You know because he well it's he did dark quite place, the great yeah. job there. Yeah. Well, what I really liked about the Joker's character was that he wasn't trying to win; he was trying to lose. Right, it's very, very difficult to deal with someone who's trying to lose. He just wanted chaos. Mm, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly, and he, and he definitely did represent. And that's what's terrifying. Of, yeah. mm, and there is a part of people's psyche, especially when they become extraordinarily resentful and bitter, is they're not aiming up. The people who shoot up high schools and then kill themselves, they're aiming down. They're very successful at attaining it as well. So it's 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 that's an interesting part of the psyche to try to to try to shed some light on although it's dangerous. Okay, uh, one or two more. Uh, Mick Dwyer, and this is something you actually you talk about extensively in the book, for, for people maybe who haven't read the book, uh, can you ask Jordan about the similarity that humans have to lobsters? Oh, well, I used the lobster example because I, I've been, I, I studied the function of the serotonin system. It's a neurochemical and neurophysiological system, the, the sort of master control system of the, of, the, of the brain, and I've studied it for a long time, and Serotonin is the chemical that governs um, emotional regulation in response to dominance hierarchy position. There's an incredibly tight association. This is one of the things that's absolutely fascinating. Hierarchies are almost inevitable among animals that exist to any degree socially because there has to be a way of organizing competition and cooperation for scarce resources. And hierarchies emerge. They're often called dominance hierarchies, although that's a bit of an oversimplification. But as the animal is more and more simple, the idea that the hierarchy is based on dominance is more and more accurate. And that's moderated by serotonin. So here's the way it works, essentially. So the degree to which your emotion is regulated is proportional to your position in the dominance hierarchy. This is partly why people don't like to have their cre- ideological credibility questioned. So imagine that You're the proponent of an ideology as a university professor, and that gives you the credibility that justifies your position in the dominance hierarchy. Someone goes after your ideological presuppositions. They they undermine your credibility and threaten your right to that position. Think, well, so what? Well, the degree to which your emotions are regulated is proportionate to the position in the hierarchy. And that's something that's really worth knowing. So if you cascade down the hierarchy, lose status and position your serotonin level decreases, and that makes you more susceptible to, to negative emotion. It dysregulates your emotional control. So it isn't directly that your ideology regulates your emotions, which is how people have kind of conceptualized it. It's that your, your status as a proponent of, of a particular viewpoint entitles you to a position in the dominance hierarchy, and so then if people undermine that, they actually dysregulate your emotions. And because one of the things that you're really trying to do your entire life is to keep your right hemisphere negative emotion systems off. You don't want them on. Well, that's panic. That's terror. That's disgust. Like, and these things can be, they can be so powerful, they can actually damage you. That's what happens with post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, you don't want those systems on. It's the worst thing that can happen to you. And so you try to stay in places where those systems are off. If people are undermining your credibility, let's say, and, and they can do that by undermining the validity of your stated beliefs, then you end up exposed to emotions that you would much rather have 
under control. That's partly why people will fight to protect their belief systems. It's complicated, but that's, that's part of the reason. And you obviously likened it to the lobster. Mm. There's, a, there's a whole chapter about that. In, yeah, in well, what I was trying here. to do, that's in chapter one. What I was trying to do was to demonstrate the universality of hierarchies. Well, that, that's the other thing, because one of the things that the left and the right fight about, apart from borders, is hierarchies. Now, the, the truth of the matter, as far as I can tell, is that if you're going to do something productive in the social world, you will erect a hierarchy around that endeavor. Well, if you start a business, you erect a hierarchy. If you, if you undertake any activity where you're organizing people, you immediately produce a hierarchy, often of competence, sometimes of power, right? Because if you do X, if you perform X activity, some people are going to be better at it than others. Even if it's only the people that want to do it, you're going to get a hierarchy. And so the price of functional operation in the social world is the production of a hierarchy. And that's, a, that's like an eternal truth. There's hierarchies going back three and a half, was 350 million years in the case of, of crustaceans. So their hierarchy is an ancient structure. And your nervous system is actually adapted to the fact that there are hierarchies in the manner that I, I just described. The problem is, and this is part of the political divide, is that hierarchies dispossess people. So what the right does essentially is say, hey, we need the hierarchies and you should support them if you're patriotic and, and committed to your family, town, state, country. Stand behind the hierarchy because it's necessary. And the left says, yeah, but it tends towards corruption by power and it dispossesses people. So we need to pay attention to the dispossessed and we have to watch the corruption. And, so that, and they're both right. They're both right. That's why you need the left and you need the right. And then you think, well, how do you solve that problem? You need hierarchies, but they produce the dispossessed and they tend towards corruption. And the answer is through dialogue. That, it comes back to that again. It comes mm. back to discussion, reasonable yes. discussion. Yes. And you need both those sides. You, you have to have them because they're discussion. both trying to solve. They're both trying to solve a problem that cannot be solved. You have to have hierarchies. They tend towards corruption and they dispossess people. It's always the case. So there's no, there's no way of generating a hierarchy that doesn't have that problem. But then you say, well, you get rid of the hierarchies. Well, then you have no tools to perform necessary functions. And worse, maybe, the thing about a hierarchy is a hierarchy makes one thing more important than other things. You think, so what? It's like, well, you can't organize your perceptions unless you have one thing that's more important than others. You're, you're looking at me right now and not everyone else. You have to select something always as valuable or you can't even see much less act and so you have to have a hierarchy of values because you can't live without one but you produce dispossession for example and inequality that's another thing that's a consequence of hierarchical structures and so those emerge as secondary problems and they have to be addressed and the way you address them you can't make a hierarchy that doesn't have that problem and you can't get rid of hierarchies so what do you do about it well you are more skeptical of hierarchies and I'm less skeptical of them. And so you say, well, your hierarchy is getting too corrupt. And we have a discussion about that. And I say, no, it's necessary. And you're pushing too, too hard towards flatness and valuelessness. And we have to argue. The, the argument is the process by which the problem is eternally solved to the degree that it can be solved. This is why that the conservatives aren't correct and neither are the, are the liberal left types. They both have their point. And the, and the way that you keep this thing in balance is, by, is through negotiation. 
That's why free speech is so important. It's not just another value. It's not just another right. It's the mechanism that stabilizes the state. And so this is why, for example, I wouldn't abide by the compelled speech principles. Do not constrain free speech. It's the mechanism by which people solve their problems. So you can't mess with that. You, you, you're, you're, the, the politicians who did that jumped outside of their... They have a legislative domain in which they can lawfully and ethically operate. They jumped outside of it with the compelled speech legislation, in my estimation. I think there's, I think there's many ripple conversations we could have just off the top of that point alone, but last we don't have time. Um, like one final question. You've spoken about, like kind of recently, about just disappearing from public, uh, from public life to a certain degree um, at some point. Is that something you see happening more and more, of just backing away from the limelight well, the and thing going is, and living is that, your life? Well, it isn't even that I want to go live my life. It's that at some point, there, there's the problems that we do, talked about earlier. There's an overexposure problem and there's a repetition problem. Like, I have a fairly wide range of things to talk about, but it's not inexhaustible. And once I've talked about all those things... Talking about them a bunch more is going to become counterproductive. So what I need to do is go away and read and think and come up with a bunch of new ideas. Now, I'm going to handle that to some degree because the next lecture series that I'm going to do is will be on Exodus. I did a biblical series last year on Genesis, and that was quite popular and I think quite necessary, certainly necessary for me because it was a good intellectual and ethical endeavor. I want to go through the Exodus stories next, and that'll be new. But I need, I need to balance communication with thinking and, and the generation of new ideas. And I'm going to finish up this tour sequence probably mostly by February. I'm going to come back to Europe probably next April for, for a bit. And then I think, like, I, I have, like, what, a thousand books at home that are sitting there waiting to be read. Is that how you unwind? Do you unwind? You know, do you, do you relax? Mostly the way I unwind is by spending time with my family. Um, I wouldn't, but no, there's very little of that. And there hasn't been much of that in my whole life, and there's certainly been none of it in the last two years. I mean, I, 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 I haven't had a, any time off for, of any duration for, well, for, for, for two years and not very much of it before then. But I'm not complaining about that. Like, I function better flat out. I mean, I need to pull back a bit because I have some reading to do and some thinking and all of that, but I'm not complaining. I mean, I've got nothing to complain about. It's very, well, how should you conceptualize your life? Peace and tranquility? I don't think so. I think if you're lucky, your life is an adventure and Hopefully it's one you undertook voluntarily. And an adventure isn't leisure and tranquility. It's alertness and readiness. And that's fine. I think that's the best you get, is that you're contending. You're contending with life successfully. And so that's the situation that I'm in, and that's fine. But it will be good and proper at some point to pull back enough so that I can read and think and write more. So, but I, I will do that. I 
I believe. So if you do pull back at some point, that, that's exactly what you're going to be doing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm writing right now. I, uh, I, I wrote a lot. Well, I'm going to post some of it today about this ongoing discussion with Sam Harris. So, but I'm looking, I like, isn't that I like writing exactly because it's too hard to, to be something that you like exactly, but it's something that I find necessary and in, 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 intensely engaging. I have a writer friend. His name is Greg Hurwitz. He featured some of my rules in one of his books, an Orphan X book, and he's been writing nonstop for 25 years. He's written a bestseller every year for 25 years. He said, he, he's involved in many projects, he said the only time he really feels like he's accomplished something is when he's writing. And I kind of feel that way too. Like if, I, if I've written during the day, then I really feel like I've done something that justified the day. And lecturing is like that and clinical work is like that, but writing is definitely like that. So I'm looking forward to doing a bunch more of that. And so... Jordan Peterson, I could genuinely talk to you all day. Appreciate your time. Best of luck tomorrow evening. Thank you very Thank much. You, Thanks for Great the invitation and the discussion. Much.